0: In three, two, one.
1: I'm Ryan Callahan, host of Cal's Week in Review, director of conservation at Meat Eater, and this is the Prairie Farm Podcast.
0: Well, this is a really special privilege for Nicholas and myself. Uh, Pheasant Fest is the gift that just keeps on giving. Um, when we were up there, oh, two and a half weeks ago now, I guess it's been two weeks ago, something like that. It was a
2: long weekend of, of sharing a room and the bed and, and all the things, <laughs>
0: Did not share a bed. I would have, uh, I would have slept on the dirty shower room floor before I, uh, had to share a bed. But, uh, no, I actually have, uh, some, uh, some uh you know horror stories from back in my football playing days when you'd have those long away games and you had to share a bed with a teammate or something so i could put up a pretty good p- pillow barrier if i had to but uh that is not the point of our conversation right now nicholas uh we say it's a gift that keeps giving because we've met so many cool people there and and of course we made a lot of good uh, business connections as well uh, but one of the, the really awesome people that we ran into while we were up there was uh, the guy that we got on the podcast today, Mr. Ryan Callahan. And I will probably refer to him as Cal from here on out because uh, I followed Cal for quite some time. And uh, that's kind of his that's that's his uh, nickname. His name he goes by most often. And so uh, uh, that's just how we recognize him. In fact, uh, we know Cal uh from the Hoxie standpoint from his weekly podcast called Cal's Week in Review, which we're going to talk about later. We'll allow Cal himself to to tell us about it, but it's an excellent resource um, for not just outdoors people, but conservationists, farmers, uh, and voters, I guess you could say in general. Uh, You can't really take the politics away from much of anything that goes on within our borders and even on this planet, I guess you could say to some extent. And so Cal's Week in Review does a nice job of keeping outdoors people, conservationists, and everyone else informed on what the issues are that relate to those areas. But, uh, Cal, before we formally introduce you here, I thought it would be fun to uh, uh, just kind of like break the ice by talking about your experience hunting in prairie ecosystems. So uh what kinds of species have you uh hunted in what we would call prairie habitat? Sorry to put you on the spot.
1: Oh the boy, that's <laughs> that's a lot. Uh mammal wise, antelope, mule deer, whitetails, elk, uh to a degree, even though I wasn't really doing the hunting, but I was I was helping folks. Sure, get, that counts. Turkeys, sharp-tailed grouse, sage grouse. Oh, I don't think any specifically prairie chickens, but uh, Hungarian partridge, Mm. uh, pheasants. And uh, I'm probably forgetting some other stuff, but... um,
0: Maybe some quail in there somewhere.
1: Yes, but yeah uh idaho quail um so like real brushy brushy draws but certainly um that uh kind of short grass prairie on the outside Mm -hmm. of that sure yeah uh chucker oh yeah 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 um probably not some of the most healthy prairie ecosystems they're big into their cheat grass yep uh but yeah, I don't know. I think that's that's about it. The, you know, hunt a lot of grasshoppers, use those to fish as a kid. <laughs> that's that's, <laughs> that's, that's a I good idea. one. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Don't they, they
2: have large prairies in Argentina? Don't they? Do you ever go down there and, and hunt anything in those?
1: Man, I'll tell you, Perdiz, which is a, a kind of a prairie grouse type of species. Okay is very high on on my list of things that i would love to oh. go do yeah that's, that's yeah. awesome but uh, i have a uh, bird dog snort who is very talented uh in the upland bird side of things yep and I, boy it'd just be heartbreaking to travel someplace <laughs> and hunt without her <laughs>
0: so so uh, anywhere snorticus is allowed to go uh cow cow will be there hunting right
1: well motivation is way higher yep way higher um yeah i I was talking with some folks who hunt grouse on the big island of hawaii oh that's Uh, awesome yeah and they have um some different um a partridge species over there too
0: hmm i didn't Um, even
1: know that and I was like, Oh yeah, get just gotta get the dog over here. I'm like, mm, it's pretty hard to get a dog to Hawaii. I'm like, take a boat, whatever. <laughs>
0: <laughs> they have a port, don't they? <laughs> yeah. A cruise line for two, just
1: Al and his dog. But every, I mean, everybody's like very into their dogs, right? Well oh, we got kennels full of pointers over here.
0: Yeah. And I'm right.
2: like,
1: Well that's uh not nearly as much fun for me. Yeah. So
2: man talk about loyal dogs We've got a loyal man over here my goodness yeah. Oh.
1: man yeah once you start uh you know kicking butt with your dog mm-hmm. it's just yeah to break up the team
0: yeah it's just not right
1: very hard and and the the clock's ticking right you only have eight nine real hunting seasons with with a dog so yep it goes, goes by pretty quick
0: yep that's a that's a good point you know what's funny about that is so I was talking before the show that I started hunting as an adult and one of the reasons I got into hunting is because my wife and I we uh purchased I guess you'd say adopted a uh Brittany and uh when I did that I was you know I was already interested in hunting but I hadn't gone hunting yet and the very first time I ever hunted was with my Brittany Theo we we kind of learned it together and uh so I I get that for sure you you feel that that bond there and that that teamwork that goes between a uh, handler and their dog, it's uh, it's really special and it you know it carries you into new country all the time. But no, that's that's awesome to hear that you've hunted all those species. The, the reason I ask that question is because it paints a picture for just how diverse prairies are. Um, there's an author who uh, uh, used to be a professor at the Iowa State University. And he wrote a book. He took like a year sabbatical. And uh, he just spent that whole year uh, researching the game that would have been living here in Iowa uh, in the pre-settlement, in pre-settlement Iowa, I guess I should say. So post-Ice Age to, you know, 18, whatever, when people really started, you know, European descended people really started flowing into the state what all was here and uh the name of that book was a country so full of game and it just i think that sums it up well you know prairies are the are you know every ecosystem has its characteristics that define what it is but you'd be hard-pressed to find an ecosystem that is more teeming with life Um, i think there's some there that are equivalent you know you go into the rainforest and you see all that diversity um but here in our prairies you can see all kinds of different critters um that's those were just mammals and and uh birds you know think of all the reptiles insects uh just it just starts to uh, yeah you know go off the charts for the amount of life that that you can find there so that uh, was cool to get that rundown and uh you know i think that's probably where we should start off our conversation here as we continue introducing cal so um uh cal is uh, as he, as you'll hear in the intro to this episode, or as you heard, I should say, uh, he works with Meat Eater. Meat Eater is a, uh, company out based in Montana that, uh, you know, I think most people probably just associate hunting with, but really it's all things outdoors that they're covering. And, uh, you know, so you got the fishing side, you definitely have information there for gear needed for like hiking, camping, um, and then, uh. The part that really uh, sets meat eater, um, you know, in a different class than I think most hunting media or outdoor media groups is the, the food side of it and the conservation side of it there's a lot of uh information there that and and those are broad enough umbrellas i guess you could say that you can pull in all sorts of other interesting things like you know history and uh, anthropology and and uh uh, you know cultural differences things like that from around the world especially with the cooking component and so uh just really appreciate everything mediator does and uh cal is is right there in the thick of it with them as we said he does host the weekly podcast um and uh before that though cal you worked with first light is that is that correct before you were with meat eater
1: yeah yep so i was the the first employee at at first light so the two founders and myself and uh yeah that was pretty pretty wild ride Mm -hmm. so building building that thing up Yeah. um Because there were three of us all working at full capacity, I was able to really get some good conservation ethic fully established in that brand before Mm. uh, we had too many cooks in the kitchen. Sure. Right? So it was more of uh, catching up at the end of the week and being like, so I did this this Mm -hmm. week. Yeah. It's already done. (laughs) 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 <laughs> <That's right. laughs>
0: nothing you, nothing yeah. you can nothing you can say about it now <laughs> yeah no that's yeah. that's good, so would you say you like growing up you had that strong conservation ethic?
1: well, I always like to be outside. I was you know very fortunate to grow up right on the edge of the rattlesnake wilderness in missoula hmm. um it's a big eastern montana family and then big western montana family and uh, my mom's side's all eastern. Okay. And my dad's side's all western. So, um, you know, splitting time between the two. there There's like your big prairie ecosystem. Yeah, And, I mean, to this day, like a dewy morning in the sagebrush in the prairie mm-hmm. is, is like the most nostalgic smell.
0: Oh, that's cool. Like,
1: like I am just like 100% hmm. home. I love it. Mm-hmm. And um yeah man picking up snakes and lizards and everything else right like growing up that was awesome and then on the western montana side of things you know like big fishing like trout fishing fly fishing culture and started guiding fishing over there and then uh, the first outfitter that I worked with he had the same thing he had a western operation primarily for elk and then he had an eastern Montana operation that was antelope deer um, lots of uh, bird hunting Mm -hmm. by proxy of going after the the plains mammal species so um, super super good, good education that way and really got to see the perspective of people who chose to make a living guiding on these public resources
2: hmm.
1: and the landowner side of things mm-hmm. on the agriculture side. And this was at a time when we were... It was, it was more often like the, the places that you ran across, they were pure agriculture businesses. Right. And so if you knocked on the door and said, Hey, I have an antelope tag, they'd be like, kill all the antelope.
0: (laughs) You're doing us a service.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was, I mean, you would hear that more often than not. Wow. Um, Same with elk, you know, it's like, you know, lots of competition for, uh, grazing forage for cattle or mm-hmm. knockdown fences or whatever the, the gripes are, you know? Yep. Um, but yeah. And then I, I guided out of Glacier National Park, uh, guiding whitewater and fishing up there. Okay. And so you learn a lot about the park and, um, and rub elbows with a lot more like forest service employees and mm-hmm. and so the conservation side of things was certainly uh part of the education because you always had to know your fishing and hunting regs regulations backward and forward right and i just never was one of those people it was like well this is stupid why should this exist right right
2: mm-hmm. yeah, yeah
1: and it was a time when seeing a gri- grizzly bear track was super interesting and yeah. seeing a bear a year was way cool yeah and there were plenty of people in western montana that <clears throat> you know had never even seen an elk right sure so um a grizzly bear was just like this amazing thing and and now you know the grizzly bear population has rebounded so well that you see them yeah way more frequently you see yep. signs of them all the time when you're in those areas. So, um, and then, like, you know, it was front and center for the wolf reintroduction here in Montana. Yep. So, major yeah. topics, and certainly, like, major topics amongst those groups, right? Of like, yeah, recreators, landowners, and the outfitter and guide community. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I was working in the Frank Church Wilderness for probably like a month and and came out of there. And I basically grew up in the, grew up in the Bob Marshall wilderness, but was coming out of the the Frank church wilderness and ended up going to, because there was free beer, a backcountry (laughs) hunters and anglers meeting in Missoula and, uh, you know, started learning about, The fact that there's like some organized forces that want to get rid of wilderness yeah and all their reasons for getting rid of wilderness was just so contradictory to literally how i was earning a living like taking people into wilderness areas Mm -hmm. and watching them just be like blown away yep by how cool everything was and and see like real life change perspective change on you know, the, the, what a wilderness area was, um, these big remote places in the Western U S and 100% of the time people come out of there with this, like I said, like life changing appreciation for this trip that they booked because their buddies wanted to go. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it was kind of expensive. But then they're like, Holy cow, this is, insane yep and uh and it was sometimes what i learned too is like you could have somebody who is in like very good shape very capable person Mm -hmm. and the landscapes are so like grand and uh mentally daunting that it like crushes their ability to get around yeah
0: right they're like it's all so (laughs) big they're like held in place by the splendor (laughs) yeah
1: yeah and And, uh, so that was like one of the mental hurdles that you know you had to like figure out how to work through every trip with uh, you know every new set of folks that had never been there right so yeah um and so that was a real motivating factor of like well wait how can this exists, this experience that I have over and over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. How can that exist? And then this other way of thinking exists at the same time that like, you know, there should be no federal land. There should be right. um, no, no areas set aside that you can't drive a, you know, RV into, mm-hmm. right? Like what the word access means. Yeah. Right? And my again, I guess maybe I just like the rules or don't mind rules. But I always had this mindset of like, oh, on BLM you can drive off road pretty much wherever the heck you want.
2: Right. And um, just to be clear, can uh, what is BLM?
1: Bureau of Land Management ground,
2: which yeah, is, cool. uh, you know which,
1: there's yeah. millions and millions of acres. It would, you know, fall under our federally managed public lands.
0: Yep. Yeah, that's yeah. awesome. Yeah, you know, I, then- I I never understood, or I, I'd never heard of that point of view before. <clears throat> you know, the of, I, I guess I was kind of like you in in that regard, Cal. Where growing up, you know, I didn't hunt, but my, you know, I was very fortunate that my dad was, you know, he he went through Boy Scouts and everything growing up, so even though he was a city slicker kid, he valued uh, wilderness, and he had some f- childhood friends that would go out to, um, uh, I can never remember, you'll have to correct me here if I'm wrong, uh, Bear Tooth Wilderness area, uh, kind of southwest Montana, and yep. th- they would go out there <clears throat> every year, and uh, so then when I was a kid, you know, he would take me along, and so you, you get this maybe that sense of freedom you're talking about it's like wow this is i can be here you know i'm not trespassing i could just go walk down to that you know sh- that little stream there and cast a you know a fly in there or i can you know wade into that lake and cast for for trout you know the all these things that were just like so unbridled then you know years later i think it was when i was in college Another one of my dad's friends was going on some political tirade in the living room at her house, and he's saying, "You know what this country needs to do? We need to offload all this, this uh, federal land. We need to get rid of all of our, you know, national parks and all of these these acres. It takes so much money to upkeep, and and all this. And I had no idea how to argue with him because, you know, I was like 19 years old, uh, but." Uh, I I knew what he was saying wasn't right. You know, I was like, I don't know how to tell you you're not right, but clearly you have not yeah. had that that life-changing experience. You know, when you're describing the the splendor that's mm-hmm. holding people in place, it's kind of like in the Jurassic Park movie, you know, the, the last person who's supposed to run away from the dinosaur and they're just like staring at how cool and magnificent the thing is. You know, yeah. you have not had that experience, dude. And uh, if you did, uh, I think you would uh, stop talking right now, you know? <laughs> but, yeah. But, it's true. That is a, a real vulnerability that as magnificent and majestic as these places are, um, there's a real, a real, uh, enemy (laughs) that exists that wants to, uh, undo all of that.
2: Another thing, I mean, if we could just accurately paint a picture of what it would be like if all of the United States was a monolithic agriculture, like, do that for 40 years and see what your water and, and your air is like, you know what I mean? If you could, if you could possibly paint that picture for people and let them know, like, Hey, just so you know, the Gulf of Mexico, that the dead zones, the second biggest in the world only beat by China. Who's famous for their pollution output. Uh, that's, that's us in the Midwest. That's our agriculture output. And, and now agriculture is for sure needed without, without it. We don't even have, uh, uh we don't even have civilization you know that was the dawn of civilization was being able to uh do that but um i think uh sorry can you guys hear that horn in the background no they good, have a good. practice tornado thing here in, in the <laughs> small town where I'm from every single day life in iowa tornado. cal <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's a good time no i when we went out to california i people would be like you had tornadoes i was like yeah but you didn't worry about it. you just like played video games through them or like, <laughs> like kept throwing the football until you saw it, you know, and just, you weren't worried about it. But, uh, yeah. So, and I think, so it's a lot of people just don't know. And again, with the, the podcast, we were saying this before, uh, recording here, that, that the biggest part of conservation is education. It's the key teaching people that having that, um, inspiration of a moment where they're, they're, uh, you know, their, their whole diet, um, Parameters of, of their worldview shift yeah
1: well the you know i think like the farmers and the ranchers are under the exact same threat that our big chunks of public land are right mm-hmm. so like imagine this world right where people don't know where food comes from yeah and that land um even though it's needed for food production, is so socially devalued that there are no programs in place for you know tax breaks in order to keep that land in production instead of selling out to a developer or no uh, permanent conservation easements for the same reason. Yeah. You don't have to sell out to a developer because the county taxes are so crazy expensive that you know you just can't afford to to be there and do it anymore and socially nobody cares that you are doing it mm-hmm. yeah
2: did, right. did you have the privilege to meet ted cook at pheasant fest
1: oh yeah he yeah, is such a cool guy, guy we had he? an interview
2: with him and such we just cool talked guy. about it has to make sense for landowners like what if, if it doesn't make sense for landowners you know what are you going to do but if if the people don't care about it, then the government doesn't care about it. The government's not going to give money to something that's not, you know, they're trying to represent their people well. And so, yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. And that open space, I mean, th- there's no question that there is a a real divide between, like, wildlife-friendly farming, yeah. wildlife-friendly ranching, mm-hmm. and, you know, max production. Yep um a factory you know, a factory like model to, right farmers don't like to turn the tractor right it's like as, straight <laughs> as, you can go, as long as you can go uh, is the best yes. thing you can do right yes um <laughs> so there's there's some work that that needs to be done there but those open spaces are even when they're in max production are still a hell of a lot better than Something that's covered up, wall to wall, to peep with people, or, yeah. um, you know, God forbid, the twenty-acre ranchette where the dude's out there on his riding lawnmower cutting grass for <laughs> three days a week. Yep, because nothing's out there eating it. Yep. Um. So it, yeah, I mean, it, it bugs me to no end that a lot of t- times when we're t- talking about conservation it it is like this uh, us versus them argument that always pops up mm-hmm. whereas it's like the the exact same things that could potentially tear down the public land ownership model that we have are the same things that can tear down private land ownership that are you know holding a lot of acres
2: mm-hmm. for
1: yeah. the purpose of food production right now so
2: yep. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that kind well of bring, brings us to the. I was listening to an episode you had on the Cows Week in Review, uh, the North American Grasslands Conservation well,
0: Act. R- r- real quick, Nick, I want, I want, oh. I want to address. So that's a good point. We got to get to that next. But I want to address something, kind of the elephant in the room in this conversation here. Um, our our podcast logo is a butterfly. <laughs> we don't. We definitely talk hunting on here regularly, but uh, this is not, you know, a. I guess, what you would call a hunting podcast. Uh, we definitely talk about it. We talk about its importance. But, Cal, I don't think we've had a more qualified person on our podcast before to maybe explain why hunting is not just like an acceptable thing. you know, like, okay, I guess, you know. Uh, why is it an important component? To conservation so when people you know hear okay they got ryan callahan this guy's a you know he's a he's a hunter uh on their podcast here we do so intentionally uh we we want you know going back to what nick said early on education such a critical part of why we do what we do why is why is hunting a critical part of the conservation picture here in in uh, i guess we could say in north america
1: so the north american model of wildlife management right is Mm -hmm. the animals belong to everybody
0: yep
1: right and they are managed in trust by the state each individual state Mm -hmm. right which is why you got to know the regulations in each individual state yep now because of this model, your hunters and anglers—it's highly regulated. So you're buying licenses, and then tags on top of that, and then sometimes stamps, and then sometimes additional um, access programs. Uh, you can uh, choose to fund, and sometimes by choosing to fund it, then you can go hunt it or fish it. Yep. Um, and a lot of that also encompasses private land to public access programs as well. So it's a functioning farm ranch, but they're enrolled in a program that are, that is funded by hunters mm-hmm. and, um, and federal excise tax dollars being your Pittman Robertson and Dingle Johnson, yep. which would be, uh, an excise tax on, um, really, uh, hunting and fishing related stuff, mm-hmm. firearms and, um, bows arrows than uh rods reels uh, weights all all the fishing stuff right so um those funding mechanisms are a huge part of the why hunters matter fishers who yep. fish matter but also you're dealing with a group that is like actively invested in mm-hmm. that program So the monetary side of things is one side of things, right? There's, you know, about 5% of the U S population hunts. So when you think about like, Oh, 95% doesn't. Yeah. And we're all getting taxed on like a federal level and a state level. And there's a percentage of, you know, about 1% and it goes up and down a little bit, depending on the administration and the year but there's, you know, about 1%, really about 0.25% of your federal tax money that you throw in, funds, public land, wildlife stuff. Yeah. But if you hunt, you throw in the other excise tax dollars, all your state license tag fees that I just mentioned, and then more often than not, (laughs) <laughs> there's uh personal donations, volunteer time on top of all that. Yeah. Now, all that is neat, but at the end of the day you can be like, "Oh, oh well, that's just cuz you want to kill a deer." Yeah. It's like, "Well, yeah, damn right I want to kill a deer. That's my food. That's yeah. my recreation dollar. That's my exercise dollar." Yep. It's what what I like to do, right? Yep. I mean, I have I have two meat grinders sitting on the counter right there for <laughs> It is what I like to do for sure, but at the same time, in order to make sure that there's a good enough habitat structure that provides a certain level of opportunity, quality opportunity that I need to invest my time to go out there and hunt deer, well, that habitat supports everything else just like if you're looking at habitat for pheasants because you like to hunt pheasants or black bears or mountain lions or whatever in order for that animal to be prolific in numbers that are harvestable then that ecosystem needs to provide the food water shelter for that animal throughout the entire year not just hunting season and what you know is often overlooked is hunting season is a very small amount of time in the year and that habitat has got to exist for the rest of the calendar year and during that time it's producing you know an incredible amount of pollinators invertebrates um, habitat for small mammals reptiles all the other things in the ecosystem so that when you do get your one or two weekends of the year to go out and pheasant hunt, you have a reasonable expectation of at least having the opportunity to get a pheasant. Yeah. And if you don't shoot your shotgun throughout the year, <laughs> you're probably gonna miss the damn thing anyway. <laughs> right? That's a good. That's and, a,
0: there's a good little hot tip in there from Cal. You should probably get out and shoot every once in a while.
1: <laughs> you should get out and shoot. Absolutely, rifles and shotguns, man. They all all need practice. And when you're buying, and, and when you're well,
0: buying those uh, extra shells, then you're uh, putting more money into Pittman Robinson too.
1: That's that's the deal. So, um, and what a lot of people don't understand is that tag in your pocket does not represent a dead animal Mm -hmm. it represents the opportunity to try to get one um try to get one dead and that doesn't happen all the time i got a (laughs) pillowcase full of tags people would kill for that are unpunched yeah they they have never been attached to an animal Mm -hmm. because i did not get so um (laughs) and that that's that's you know a a brief outline of a system, right? So these animals are not put out on the landscape for our uh, enjoyment or our food. They are, the habitat is built, preserved, protected, and promoted in such a way that that habitat grows that life along with a ton of other life that can be enjoyed by everyone. Yeah. And so Mm -hmm. I have a very hard time believing that that system that benefits everybody would still be in place if it weren't for people who hunt and fish. Because, you know, like we mentioned earlier, you cannot look at a prairie or a lake or a stream the same way if you've ever hunted or fished, like when you're out Mm -hmm. there, you're looking at it from the perspective of somebody who fishes or even kayaks or whatever, like you just look at a river in a very different way. Yeah. Like, because you are interacting with it in a very different way. Yeah. Uh, And those, those are the people that are going to step up and call their elected officials, email them, show up, testify in public hearings because they're fully invested in those landscapes yeah and it's no different than uh somebody who farms or ranches who you know unfortunately have to occasionally stand up and and validate why they exist as well
0: yeah yeah very well said and and uh man i i i couldn't expound on anything cal said (laughs) it was it was Perfectly summed up, hunters play a very important role within conservation. That's why we, uh, even though we knew that that would cause probably some controversy on a uh, podcast that has a butterfly for a logo, a very beautiful butterfly, by the way, Nick's wife uh, drew that thing. and it's, uh, it's Yeah, very, just like
2: in her pastime. That's right. I actually
1: showed uh, showed the card off to a couple of people. Oh, oh. nice. Yeah, because yeah, the butterfly's on the card. It's good looking. Yeah, oh, thank pa- you. I'll tell her.
0: I'll yeah, tell yeah. Pass that on to Danielle. That's she's gonna start wanting royalties here though soon. So maybe. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Look, last night she sanded mud for like six straight hours, and uh, and I told her I was like, "This is this is the price of trying to be an artist for a living. We gotta we gotta <laughs> flip homes of the bad pastime."
0: Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Nick oh, is yeah. living in the middle of a remodel right now, so he he's got a probably a little bit of dust under his fingernails today, but no, it's, uh, it's true. And, um, here's something else I thought of, Cal, this is a little bit off topic, but do you have a hard time throwing away those unpunched tags? I just can't, like every one of my hunting totes that I have hunting gear in down in the bottom of it somewhere is an unpunched tag or three and uh, i just can't bring my they're so pretty and they 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 serve as like some kind of lesson to myself like well you screwed up and that's why you still have that tag there you didn't shoot your shotgun enough or you didn't you didn't usually it's a a rifle or a bow
2: uh, tag that's left in there but uh do you, do you have that problem You know, 400 too? years ago, it means they just didn't eat. That's they didn't right. have a pretty tag on punch. They just didn't eat. But they also didn't yeah.
0: have hunting seasons. That's my one uh, thing that whenever I start feeling that way, like, man, you let your you let your descendants down today, kid. <laughs> it's like, yes, but I had to hunt within, you know, legal hours and, and within a certain dates on the calendar. But, but do you, do you have a hard time parting with your old tags, Cal?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, one, you know, one day when, you know, I'm like old – and gray er and too beat up to do it. I'll uh haul all those things out and look at all the animals I saved. And, right. and also total the, the cash investment. That's right. Yeah,
0: don't do that. Don't do that. Have you seen that have you seen that meme that goes around it's like it's a father and son walking through like a uh, like a marsh and uh they're like they got you know goose decoys hanging around their neck or whatever and the that you know the kid like says to the dad he's like dad is there any way to become a uh, millionaire by hunting and he's like yeah start out as a billionaire <laughs> it's so true the the money spent but as as cal just spelled out for us that money is is well used it goes to a very good cause and in fact on one of our uh, coffee time uh Wednesday episodes that we do. We just talked about the uh, feral cow problem down in the Gila and uh, you know, the every uh state agency has their reasoning or federal agency in that case for why they uh you know, remove uh uh wildlife in the manner that they do. But once again, you know, another money making opportunity there if if uh allowed if they allowed hunters to purchase tags to, to remove that some some feral beef would be an interesting thing to add to my menu i'm I'm gonna venture to guess that it probably tastes fairly similar to just grass-fed beef but uh hey you know
1: <laughs> yeah it's it's a little more i have some in my freezer right now um i went down a friend of mine is is one of the professional wranglers uh-huh um that was hired by a county in new mexico to remove feral cattle oh really yeah and i went down there with them i'll have an episode on youtube coming out here oh I it is i think probably by mid-april
2: okay okay yeah that'd be good what what, uh youtube channel is that
1: it'll be on the meat eater youtube channel but it'll be under uh the cal in the field series great show you know take a bunch of the topics that come into the podcast and then try to go explore them further. Yeah. And, uh, so we went down and, and wrangled feral cattle for about three days and how it taste. Um, it, yeah, I mean it, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's a lean, lean beef. Ah, yeah. It's lean, lean beef. Yeah. Um, but yeah, what they're doing over there in like the Gila and Apache National Forest is unfortunate because there's a lot of a lot of good meat hitting the ground. Yep. But boy, those cattle are so destructive. Yep. On the natural landscape and. They, they love destroying cultural sites down there, too,
0: oh boy um, <laughs> that's a problem
1: yeah you know they like rubbing on stuff, and, <clears throat> yep, and aren't uh, quite aware of how much they weigh um,
0: well i I remember epi- all. I, rem- <laughs> I remember a, an episode <laughs> oh Nick, you just would work that in there buddy uh the I remember an episode of uh, Cal's Week in review where we talked about that um very, uh, isolated subspecies of trout that are in the Gila. And when they had those, uh, fires going on, I think that was a year ago, wasn't it? Um, they had to have the fisheries biologists come in and net all those fish out of the, uh, out of the streams there to put them into holding tanks so as to preserve the genetic line of these fish. And from, (laughs) from all the toxic runoff that was going to come from, uh, uh, the, you know the the ash and everything from the the, the burning uh habitat there um it, it, the conservatives like a change in water ph and trout are very sensitive to to such things and so i imagine the cows do a number on those trout too right
1: well yeah i mean they they certainly promote erosion Mhm. Um, especially in like those post-fire years when it's yeah, that's uh, true yeah burning a little hot right and it so you know fire is like the best thing for those landscapes you get a lot of lightning during the monsoon seasons and Mm
0: -hmm.
1: um, it's great for promoting that that fresh growth that big grazers love and um it's certainly been a tool on the landscape for a really really long time something that we kind of got away from for a while but um hopefully we'll be burning being proactively burning a lot more acres but when those fires burn too slow and too hot and they destroy that the root structure
2: Mm -hmm.
1: right then all of a sudden there's nothing holding back the soil Mm -hmm. and so you get this massive erosion that drops down into those stream beds and that silt getting into that fine gravel that that trout like it Mm -hmm. you know kills all the invertebrates so there's no food and then depending on the time of the year too there could be eggs in there as well so yeah sure uh, that's, that's where fire gets, gets out of hand. And, and so ideally we'd be having more fires in a lot of that country and, um, wouldn't have to worry about the trout because they'd all be, uh, healthy,
0: yeah, right. healthy systems, but the, the beef
1: on the landscape, um, as well as the wild horse and burrow populations that, I mean, they're, they're really hard on water sources in areas where they're isn't water all over the place yeah so it's it's tough and uh, yeah especially like new mexico grows absolutely fantastic grass and you get into these spots where the it's interesting you you can call them wild because a lot of that beef that's on the landscape it's been there for multiple generations
0: yeah that's interesting Yeah, um
1: so it's kind of odd to to say wild but <laughs> they they don't like being messed with, so they can get habituated in, into just hanging out in certain spots, and they'll yeah eat, eat themselves out of house and home pretty quick, so yeah it uh it's a tough situation i'd I'd love to see the beef get used, I think everybody would, yep, but man, running around down there, and you literally have cattle that do not herd. Right? So we're yeah. like, oh yeah, just feed them up. Well, these things spend their whole lives <clears throat> and their parents spent their whole lives and their parents spent their whole lives not conforming into nice groups and <laughs> down the trail. Yeah. Right? Um, so, like an old grumpy bachelor. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, all they're <laughs> looking for is, is ways to escape. And mm. it is just different. You know, I grew up uh, pushing cattle uh, with the family every summer, somehow, some way. And this is not that, you know, like mm. they like that uh, instinct or learned behavior does not exist.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So
1: mm. from a practical and pragmatic standpoint, shoot them from a helicopter. <laughs> Like I mean, it's 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 so dangerous. It is so dangerous. Like you're gonna go get a good mountain horse, herding cattle horse out there. Yeah, and uh, you know have twenty five thousand bucks down the drain because some nasty old cow smashed it. Yep, Um, break leg out there, and then the human cost is severe too. So I mean, it's. It it is a wild way to make a living. My buddy Cody loves it, but, man. Yeah, that's pretty hard. That's
0: pretty hardcore. Yeah, I think there's stats on that, right? Like, more people die every year from uh, uh, negative interactions with cows than from, like, grizzlies and sharks and stuff like that. Uh, Cows are big animals not to be messed with, so I, I can definitely see what you're saying there. But yeah, it would it would be awesome to see the meat go to use. But we understand too that that uh, there's there's reasons behind uh, why uh, these departments make these rules. Maybe I'm maybe I'm like you, Cal. I'm just too trusting for uh, the 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 laws <laughs> and why they exist. But but uh, no, I think uh, I think it would be great to see them go go to use.
2: Well, you
1: also, I mean, you have a bunch of people out there trying to make a living. It's all under grazing allotments like folks that are paying to put yeah. beef out yep. on those public lands they agreed a management plan and you know they're they're actually managing that herd in a in the correct way mm-hmm. they're getting them on at a certain date when the grass can sustain it and they're pulling them off at a certain date every year and like the number of cattle that they can run keeps going down and down and down because the feral or wild yeah. populations that's a good point. Are beating the crap out of the landscape. And then mm. obviously our elk deer cows, deer mm-hmm. are competing for that same forage and it's not doing them any favors either. Yeah. So it's, um, it's, it's tough. And, and, you look at like the wild horse and burrow program, like how much money yeah. goes to, um, a, an issue that we do not have a solution for. Mm-hmm. Like the BLM in particular is just like hemorrhaging cash, holding on to big herds of wild horses and burros that, um, you know, we just can't do anything with because we all decided as a society that uh, they're too iconic, cute, yeah. and Western yep. to um, regulate their, their herd numbers. So,
0: yeah, it's tough. Yeah, that is the most postmodern conservation <laughs> issue, I think, to ever <laughs> exist. You have this this thing that was once native to North America, extirpated from North America. Uh, for what
2: came back without toes
0: yeah that's right and then and then all of a sudden gets gets uh turned loose on the landscape again you know what a couple thousand years after they disappeared and uh here they are again and now they don't really have a place anymore so no that is that's a fascinating issue but we we do need to get here as uh we're we're approaching the hour mark here and we want to be respectful of cal's time he's a busy man um uh Nick, you were going to bring up the North American Grasslands Conservation Act, which Mm -hmm. um, uh, Act of 22, we should say, because it was proposed uh, just recently in in 2022. Mm -hmm. Um, Cal, what's uh, kind of an update on this act and maybe just like a a quick uh, down and dirty explanation for what what the act is attempting to do?
1: All right. So you guys got to realize that there are – uh, people who have dedicated a big chunk of their career at this point working mm-hmm. on this thing.
0: Yeah, that's right. One yep. of
1: them. Uh, but the, basically this would be a sister program that would go uh, in line with um, the North American wetlands conservation act. Okay. Yep. And so you'd have dedicated funding and programs that would address needs not specifically addressed in like the farm bill, which would provide um money training um outside help to a lot of private land owners that want to restore these prairie ecosystems mm-hmm. because your native grasses you know, they, they're way more drought tolerant. They, uh, help break up the soil. They, um, can actually raise the water table. So you have a healthier, more sustainable grazing operation that is of course better for all of these, um, mammal, small mammal pollinator, Mm -hmm. um, um, Oh, what am I trying to say here? All those, all those other critters too. Yep. So, all the non- uh,
0: non-game species.
1: Yep. All those game and non-game species. So, um, in 2022, there are a lot of big numbers in the act dollars that would um, be dedicated to it, and there's a lot of question marks in regards to like, where is the money coming from? How do we fund this? And so I would expect to see some revisions there in 2023 and probably just more details, more specifics. But what we do know, and I'm sure if you spoke to Ted Cook, uh, he told you this, right, is we are losing our native grasslands at a higher rate than any other ecosystem mm-hmm. uh, that we deal yep. with in North America and at a higher rate than a lot of ecosystems in, on the planet. Yeah, And those ecosystems support a ton of life mm-hmm. as well as a lot of the things that uh, I certainly love to go out and do. So <laughs> yep. um, it it's a real thing. We're staring down the barrel of losing the prairie chicken, losing... Beautiful. Um the sage grouse mm-hmm. losing Man. these really cool populations of sharp tailed grouse that are now like remnant populations that are so um detached from other populations that we don't know how deep the the gene pool is going to be for right, them. Yep, But they are also by no means lost. Like it is so relatively easy to get this program back up and running um that it's also very frustrating as to why we are having a hard time getting these programs off the ground um and sometimes it's it's a generational shift yeah uh as you know like if you sat in on the farm bill panel at pheasants pheasant fest Coil forever um you know, there's a lot of old folks, 77, 80 year old folks that are like, well, now I'm at a point where I want to get some of this land turned into, uh, native grasses, but CRP takes too long. What does there exist that can help me do this? And keep in mind, I'm 80 years old. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Yep. Um, and that's, that's what, uh the north american grasslands conservation act would hopefully address and be able to implement some programs that are more specific have uh an easier threshold to cross Mm -hmm. as far as implementation.
0: yep yeah yeah i think i i was reading up on it and uh i noticed that right away it's like man this is very inclusive which is which is great because uh that that is one of the barriers with crp although i'm a huge fan of our of our uh crp component to the farm bill um you know i think it it was a very forward thinking thing when it came out um some would probably say it came out too late but it's been improved through the years too you know think back to the old uh mid 80s when they still called it the set aside <laughs> program and you know, just brome. Yeah, you could plant brome and read canary grass, <laughs> yeah. and and uh, you know all those other things. But you know, I think that was foresight too, knowing that this these. If we wanted to pretend there was no controversy here in this conversation, you know, uh, that would be fa- very false. You know, it's tough to get landowners to to see things from a different way because you're talking about the thing that is their livelihood, the thing they've taken care of, not just them, but mm-hmm. but their dad and their, their granddad have all, um, been, you know, taken care of for a hundred plus years. And, uh, then to come along and say, well, you actually need to stop farming that and you need to put that into grass. You know, it's a stepped process of acceptance. And I just think now, you know, we went, so we went into the set-aside program in the, the mid-80s. We got farmers to just stop tilling that ground right up next to that creek bank that's eroding a little bit more every year and just dumping fertilizer right into the water. And we got them to put in reed canary grass, and we got them to put in brome, and we got them to put in Kentucky blue. Um, but then we start saying, well, actually, if you're going to have get a CRP payment, you need to keep trees out of there. You need to um, you need to have native species planted instead of just any species, and um, you know. So we've we've increased the steps, and I <clears throat> I really think you know in a way the North American Grassland Conservation uh, Bill is another step outside of CRP though. So it's it's running kind of alongside of it. Um, but it's another natural progression that needs to happen for us as a nation, um, you know, and how we view our uh, our landscape. And uh, I I really well, like, like like how it's put together.
1: When I said like w- the the various uh, definitions of access, like what access mm-hmm. means, right? Yep. Well, the same thing goes for production, like what production is. Yeah, and the, the point is, is like if you have that natural landscape that you can still graze, by the way, mm-hmm. it's always in production. Yep. It is yeah. always producing. Um, it especially if you can look at that and say like, I'm actually increasing the water table on my property. Mm-hmm. I'm a uh, banking forage that will regenerate and kick ass if there's a fire yep uh, it is also doing this thing that a, a friend of mine who's a farmer in south dakota has an amazing story where uh, you know the farm was was chugging along it was profitable uh, largely because his dad was farming at a time when things were just good and when he came along he was on his He was sick of his first career, came back to the farm and, you know, just kind of, well, why do we do this? Why do we do that? Why do we do this bugging the crap out of his dad? And his dad was like, you know what, if you can pay the insurance on this place, you can figure some stuff out on your own. (laughs) And he just started taking areas that were of low productivity Mm
0: -hmm.
1: and, and seeing what they could get paid on. So they have, you know working easements on intermittent wetlands um that they, they can graze they mm-hmm. can farm if they want to hmm. but they can't drain it and tile it yep hmm. but now they don't they don't plant those areas because it used to be just like throwing money into a yeah. hole yep. with, their, with their seed to sometimes get a return every five years maybe yep Um, So now they just don't farm it. So they're saving on the gas, they're saving on the seed bill, they're saving on the fertilizer, um, any sort of spraying that they have to do in those areas. And then they started doing it on um, some of their pasture ground for uh, native prairies. Mm -hmm. And as a byproduct of this, they were making some more money on, on the ground. Dad had to turn the tractor, which he hates. (laughs) Contoured
0: farming, yep. (laughs) But at
1: the end of the day, they can see the benefit in their bottom line. Mm -hmm. And what they couldn't see is the fact that as these um, prairie animals and ecosystems started getting back up and running, the whole place, the whole operation became way more enjoyable for everybody on the farm. So mm-hmm. now there's a shitload more raptors, birds, um, lots more butterflies. Uh, they're instead of occasionally having deer on the property, um, their white tail, tail deer population is at like an all time high. Wow! And, um, they just got uh, prairie chickens for the first time.
0: That's ever crazy.
1: Wow! And that is so they cool. just they just showed up.
0: Wow! Right? Wow!
1: And so instead of just being like this landscape where all it does is represent work. Now the kids, the cousins, everybody wants to spend time out there. Mm-hmm. And you know, you talk about what's killing the farmer and the rancher is the fact that none of the kids want to come out there and do it. Yeah. Cause mm-hmm. it is a ton of work. But now instead of being like, I know exactly what I'm going to see today. Yeah, because it's the same every single day. It's not. They get to wake up and be like, "Ooh, I wonder what I'm going to see running the tractor."
0: Yeah, that's a good point. It's a it's a new opportunity at at uh, tuning into something mysterious, which is, I think, it goes back to what you talked about when you were guiding in some of those uh, wilderness areas. That that is what is so romantic about it is the mysterious you don't know what to expect you there's so many opportunities to be have your mind blown and uh that was always my favorite part of tromping around at my grandparents farm you know i, I didn't spend a lot of time tromping around in the middle of the cornfields i went to the yeah. little the, the fence rows and the, the old hedgerows and the you know the the unfarmed acres where wild was a lot allowed to exist and uh just you know, spent thousands and thousands of of uh, hours through the years just hanging out in those places, and uh, mm-hmm. I think that that's a that's a good way to to sum up the the hope that comes from that bill, which uh, kind of takes us to uh, our closing point here, Cal. <clears throat> you know, uh, one of the things I like to brag about where we're located here is uh, we're about. Uh, well, I am, I guess, right now. Well, Nick is, too, just in a little bit different direction. We're about 15 to 20 minutes away from the hometown of uh, John F. Lacey. Good old Oskaloosa, Iowa, is where uh, John F. Lacey was, uh, you know, uh, living his professional career. In fact, I think there's a, a, a quote somewhere about uh, him where he uh, uh, recalled... Um, when his family moved from uh, the East coast, I think he grew up in Virginia or was born in Virginia. And then when he was like, a, I don't know, grade school age kid, they made their trip over to, to Iowa. But, um, Definitely, as a professional, lived in in Oskaloosa. I might be mixing his story with somebody else, but he's from Oskaloosa. The point being, and uh, that was you know the they la- honored him well. Yeah, oh, don't don't get me started there, Nick. Yeah, the the Lacey Sports Complex, Cal. Uh, you know how do you how do you reward a great conservationist? Give him a sports complex, man. Pour that concrete. <laughs> buy that. Buy those plastic bleachers, but. Um, no, uh, we need to have a, a native prairie. Actually, I, I told the story uh, uh, to to Mark Kenyon on another podcast I do once, and he he, he suggested we should put in a uh, native prairie uh, for, <laughs> in honor of uh, John F. Lacey. But you know that the Lacey Act was a 1900, right, or 1903? I always mix the the two dates up. But we're basically 120 years removed from the the Lacey Act, and that has helped. You know, save and change the trajectory for wildlife in our country to where we really have a an enviable uh, resource here in North America, not just in the United States, up into Canada as well, where we have all these incredible game species and non-game species for that matter kind of the idea you were talking about when you preserve the habitat for say pheasants you're also preserving habitat for all these other species if we could look forward to 120 years from now what um what does cal maybe see so mix a little bit of realism here with optimism we try to stay optimistic on the podcast our boss uh, uh carol hoxberg and he um uh, told me once when I was being a little pessimistic uh, this past summer he said if you're in this business you got to be an optimist and uh, so what would be a good mixture of realism and optimism for what Cal sees 120 years from now what you what, what you think we'll see here in uh, the United States as far as our ecological state goes.
1: Okay, realism is you know our population is is ever expanding mm-hmm. okay um, which will put greater and greater demands on our resources mm-hmm. the optimism side it would be that as that demand increases our Uh, respect for and need to conserve working landscapes will increase as well Hmm. and working landscape is is the the key there you know we um we know and and I would think uh, folks listening to this podcast know is like, if you do incredible conservation work on a chunk of ground that nobody knows about and never gets to see, mm-hmm. then mm-hmm. it's like, does it really exist? Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And so keeping these landscapes working and accessible is absolutely critical to long-term conservation right mm-hmm. um, so we got to have access to this stuff and I think if we were to jump that far down the road we are going to have some bigger fights with bigger payouts in regards to like conservation easements like yeah. keeping um, keeping the family farm is going to be heavily reliant on a conservation easement that says, Hey, this land is set aside for this. And that's all it can be, Yeah, you know, Mm be seen as, as a good thing. So, um, I think the other optimistic side of me is going to, you know, going to see a shift in the way that we talk about hunting and fishing. Um, i think like telling the big stories of the big bucks and the big deer and all that um has gotten us only so far and and mm-hmm. it's our responsibility to be better at promoting all the things that growing a big buck promotes yeah right which is the the habitat side of things and and how many people get a benefit from that as well mm-hmm. so
0: yeah. Yeah. Very well said. And, and some real things to consider there. And, um, you know, we just got done with the deer class. I'm a little tired today. <laughs> we just worked the Iowa deer Classic all weekend. And by the way, I loved what you said on Cal's weekend review, when you said that you do those expos all the time and, uh, most of them leave you totally, uh, uh, drained and exhausted by the end, but pheasant fest left you like Reinvigorated and uh, excited, and you know, kind of leaves you with that like kumbaya moment, you know, where it's like "Ah, we're all excited, you know, and and I can't wait to see everybody again next year, type thing. Definitely felt that energy too at Pheasant Fest, and and it was a good energy at the Deer Classic too. But I am, I am. Host today but uh <laughs> we we uh we we uh talked with so many people there and you know one of the things we try to promote are to that audience you know i think uh pheasants you know pheasants forever members already like a lot of that conservation value is already there that's why they're at pheasant fest you know that's why there are pheasants forever member but just the you know hey show up here if you like you know schlock and big bucks you know come to come to the <laughs> iowa deer classic you know that that conservation background isn't there as often so we were selling people on our native perennial uh food plot mixes and um I had to say time and time again, you know, this is a long term, this is a long run game. You know, this is, you're you're playing the long game here when you're putting in a native uh, food plot as opposed to, you mm-hmm. know, uh, you know, big Ted's, uh, you know, brassicas or something like that. You're, you're, you're putting in something that you're going to have to take care of and you're going to have to, you know, put a lot of investment into getting, and then the reward comes down the road. And so much of that, is the story of conservation? You know, we put this front-end work work in, and we see that value for the long game. Then uh, we get the long-term payout, and uh, everybody everybody wins if we can see that value beyond just the dollar. You know, and see that value beyond just that immediate time spent. If we have that delayed gratification. Maybe a little bit of appreciation for some type two fun, right, Cal, where you got to be out there sweating, sweating it out and and doing the hard things. Then uh, the payoff, the payoff will come and it'll be something that we can feel good about for the rest of our lifetime because we know that those that come after us, those that will be reading our journals about the day when we saw 25 toms and one uh, forest clearing, uh, then they know that we put in that hard work for them to leave them with a better place and so uh mm. really appreciate you cal coming onto the show today and yeah you know for
2: hey if oh yeah if, if people ahead. want to uh if people want to find you if they're listening here and, and they really like what you had to say where would they be looking
1: oh go to the meat dot com. Um, also instagram old cal 406 I'm yep. sure you can type in Robbie Callahan too. that. Everybody uh, always said I was an old man. Even, uh, <laughs> and then, um, yeah, YouTube, Meteor YouTube channel. Um, you can uh, see some adventures there and have some cool stuff coming up on Rounding Up Feral Cattle in New Mexico, fisheries biology with jumbo perch, um, fire management in florida as it relates to turkeys which mm-hmm. will be cool um a lot of people think ground nesting birds and fire don't mix um and uh a bunch of other stuff that i can't remember right now so uh it'll <laughs> it'll be good
0: yeah i i can attest to that i've followed uh cal for a long time and i've always appreciated him and and uh his outlook on things you know interestingly enough cal i like to listen to uh meat eater trivia every week. And, uh, I try not to be one of the pause happy people where I just, Oh, let me, uh, you know, mull that over for yep. five minutes. Uh, there are times though when I like, you know, I'm like get busy doing something and then I go into this blind panic because I, I stopped listening for like, 30 seconds, and they're like, and I hear Spencer be like, All right, everyone show your answer. I don't have an answer yet. You know, so I got to, I got to, I got to like pause for that real quick. But I usually perform pretty close to you. So I think we uh, view things in a similar way. And, and uh, you were the only person to get the uh, Boone and Crockett question. Right, recently on uh, on episode, what were the three most uh, common species entered into uh, BNC? And uh, I also got that question. Where I was like, Yeah, that's right. Cal, Cal knows what's up there, but uh, <laughs> but no, I, I always appreciate listening to Cal, and and uh, I love your sense of humor, uh, as Nick said, it, it's. Yeah. It's a very dry sense of humor, and I think it takes a uh, smart person to uh, use dry sense of humor and to appreciate <laughs> it. So you gotta you gotta kind of play the long game there too. You gotta think about what they're saying, then it hits you, and it's hilarious. So appreciate it, man.
1: Well, it uh, probably won't be stopping anytime soon. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, thank you. No, I appreciate it. Uh, you guys having me on, and um, keep uh, slinging those native seeds. That's right. I, I sure sure appreciate the the thigh high stuff when i find it so
0: that's right that's right and uh nick kind of came up with a new closing for us so i'm going to work it in today nick uh this is officially the first episode i like it it just fits better because we don't always talk about yards conservation happens one mind and i guess you could say one yard at a time (laughs)